This is episode 217 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled Ray Bradbury and the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the mostly self-explanatory show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. This show is a reboot of Dear Discreet Guide, which ended with 202 episodes at the end of year 2020. So thank you for joining us in the new show. I'm excited to see where this new adventure will take us. I am really thrilled to have a new guest uh, to welcome to the show today. Uh, Jason Ackerman is with us. Uh, Jason is a clinical assistant professor of American studies and English at Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis, uh, affectionately known to us as IUPUI, where he also serves as the director of the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies, which will be one of the things that we'll talk about today. His research interests include Ray Bradbury, the war fiction of United States veteran authors, 20th century American genre fiction, primarily science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and adult literacy advancement. Through his work in the Bradbury Center, Dr. Ackerman champions literacy development through a variety of programs designed to encourage and aid people in disciplining themselves and becoming better readers, writers, and thinkers. Woohoo! He also teaches fun courses at IUPUI, such as American Supernatural and Conspiracy Theories. And I was uh, stalking him on the internet yesterday and discovered that he is a great teacher. So his reviews on ratemyprofessors.com range between great and awesome. And I think Ray Bradbury would love the kind of teaching that Jason does, where one student said he shows you how to write for people, not grades. So welcome to the show, Jason. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. I've had so much fun over the last few days reading Ray Bradbury and uh, doing a tour of the center and learning about you. So yeah, it's just all really been very fun. So knowing that Ray Bradbury said that college is terrible for writers, he didn't recommend college for writers, which is a little self-serving since he himself never went to college. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> tell, tell me what approach you take to teaching writing. Well, you know, um, uh, yeah, I, I've been teaching at the college level for 10 years now. This is my 10th oh. year. Oh, yeah. Wow. And I, I started off teaching the course that no student wants to take. And generally speaking, no professor wants to teach. And that is freshman composition. And uh, what happened was I had just finished my first master's degree. I, I earned an MBA. Well, you know, I really wanted to go on to be a professor and, and study the humanities at the graduate level, but I got married young and we started having a family and I thought, you know, I've got to let this dream die. Mm. And so the university I was working for, if you work there for three years and were in good standing, uh, you could get a free master's degree. And so I w went through their MBA program just because, you know, it was, it was an added bonus. It was about halfway through that program. I realized this is going to haunt me my entire life if I don't go for it. Uh. Uh, so. I finished the MBA and then started uh, looking for programs that, that more fit what I wanted to do. And, you know, the job market for academics is very, very poor. It's very hard. There's a lot of people with PhDs that do not have uh, full-time uh, employment in academia. So I, I feel very, very fortunate to be where I'm at. You know, I wake up every morning just uh, pinching myself. But you ask about my approach to writing. Um I didn't know what I was doing that first semester. You know, I knew that I wanted to be an English professor. Yeah, my calling is to read great books and connect other people to those great books. Uh, I knew how to write, but I, I did not know how to teach writing. Mm -hmm. 
And so every, I, I remember every night I would prepare a lecture for the students thinking this would take me to the full 45 minutes of, of the class period. Uh, the classes met on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And I, in 20 minutes, I'd be through my slides oh. and I wouldn't know what to do, but the class met in a computer lab. And so I would make up a writing prompt right there on the spot and have them write for the rest of the hour because I knew that's how I learned how to write was mm. was by doing it, by, by practicing, by writing, which is very much in line with Bradbury's advice. You know, write a short story a week. It is impossible for you to write 52 bad short stories. <laughs> um, uh, and, and really, that's how Bradbury learned how to write. And I think, you know, it was mid-September. And I just, I think there was, there was a high level of imposter syndrome uh, with me as a professor. Uh, and I, I just sensed the students were getting skeptical, if not cynical of my approach. And I needed somebody to, to affirm what I was doing. And so I consulted Dr. Google and came across this clip, which has since been taken down. It was uh, an interview with Ray Bradbury. And he's wearing uh, white shorts, white tube socks, a, a white tennis jacket white collar shirt, black tie, and his, his dark bottle cap glasses. And uh, they're, they're interviewing him about his early uh, career, how he got started writing. And he told uh, this story about how he wrote The Lake. You know, when he was 22 years old, he started writing every day of his life at age 12. And it wasn't until 10 years later, he sat down and wrote this short story called The Lake and realized when he had finished, he said, I sat at the typewriter and wept because mm. I'd finally written something beautiful. I wasn't writing for this magazine or that magazine. I wasn't writing for the right or the left. I wasn't writing for anybody but me. I had come into my own as a writer. So I played that clip for them, you know, because the whole message was you learn to write by writing persistently. Mm. And then I read the lake to my students and Ray Bradbury uh, and this is this is years before I knew anything about the uh, the Ray Bradbury Center, long before I ever met Dr. Jonathan Eller, who was close friends with Ray Bradbury. But Ray Bradbury has been a core part of my teaching approach, especially when it comes to writing, ever since. Had you found Ray Bradbury yourself as a reader? And mm -hmm. yeah, and, and tell me what you think about him as a writer. Like, what do you like or, or don't like if there's anything you don't like? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I think he, he is he's much better as a short story writer than he is as a long fiction writer. He is a master of, of short fiction. You know, I'd made it through college as an English major and, uh, you know, took uh, as many English classes as my, the curriculum would allow in high school. And I'd read Brave New World, I'd read 1984, I'd read Slaughterhouse-Five. Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 was one that was never assigned mm -hmm. uh, through, throughout my, uh, mm -hmm. until I graduated uh, college. So that was one of the first books the, uh, on my list, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, but I became much more impressed with Bradbury when I started to discover his short fiction. I mean, don't get me wrong, I've always been impressed with Bradbury, but uh, my appreciation for him grew significantly when I started discovering his short stories. Yeah, I can see that also. And he would probably agree. I mean, even, you know, the Martian Chronicles, which I think are officially released as a as a novel or a single work, really started as short stories. Oh, absolutely. Every yeah. single one of those stories was, with the exception of Way in the Middle of the Air, um, what was published in, in pulp magazines or slick magazines before he compiled them all into a unified narrative of Mars. Mm -hmm. So you've been involved now with the center for a number of years and tell us how that happened. What brought you there? Well, I, I was working full-time for a public library, which I think Ray Bradbury would very much appreciate. Absolutely. We're all uh, library people here on this right. podcast, us and uh, Bradbury himself. Yeah. And I, I'd taken that job at the library because it gave me a flexible enough schedule that would allow me to continue to be on IUPUI's campus two days a week, continuing to teach writing. You know, that's that's really the work that I was most passionate about. At that point, I'd earned my second master's degree and was was looking for a PhD program and found one. Um, you know, got, got connected with Dr. Ray Haberski, who's put together a, a fascinating and I think very important, it, I think it's an important next step in the evolution of PhDs in the humanities. Mm. 
the PhD program required an internship and there was a track available in the Bradbury Center. Well, uh, Dr. Jonathan Eller was the director of the center at that time. He was, uh, he was one of the founders of the Bradbury Center. And I had taken a course with him when I was working on my master's in English and uh, really connected with him uh, and, and just had so much admiration and appreciation for him. And when I heard that there was an opportunity to work in the Bradbury Center, uh, through an internship role, as I earned my PhD, uh, I jumped at the chance. Of course, with with my wife's full support, we went through our 30s with with her supporting me as I pursued my dream. And I, I, I owe her uh, a great debt, her and my children both. Uh, the family made some significant sacrifices so that I could do that. And so I started working in the Bradbury Center in 2017 and uh, working closely with Dr. Eller. And in a way that was, it was almost like an old fashioned apprenticeship, Mm. Uh, you know, and how to direct the center, um, you know, learning about Bradbury's life and career. You know, John has written a three volume biography on Ray Bradbury um, that's that's available now. And uh, the the volumes are Becoming Ray Bradbury, Ray Bradbury Unbound and Bradbury Beyond Apollo. So if you really want to get a really good overview of Bradbury's intellectual and creative life, read John Eller's biographies. So tell us, yeah, tell us a little bit more about John Eller's relationship with uh, Bradbury. And I mean, I think that explains why the center is in Indianapolis, although you tell me maybe there are more reasons. Oh, no, it absolutely um, explains why the center is in, in Indianapolis. See, John Eller is a fascinating guy. He, I hope he never hears this podcast because he'll he'll knock me upside the head for bragging on him. This much. he's, he's <laughs> very humble. That's why I have you. <laughs> yeah, he, he he is a very humble person and, and does not like um, doesn't like people bragging on him. Uh, but I can't help it. Uh, his first career was uh, in the U.S. Air Force as an intelligence officer, mm. and while he was in the Air Force. The United States paid for him to go to get his PhD at IU Bloomington so he could teach at the Air Force Academy and then later at, at, at the Naval Academy. Uh, the Air Force Academy hosted a science fiction convention. Uh, they brought in Octavia Butler, Jill Haldeman, uh, several other big names, but the biggest name by far was Ray Bradbury and John was assigned to Ray Bradbury. Mm. And so this is in the, the 1980s and uh, just a, a friendship between John and, and Bradbury grew a, a strong intellectual friendship, and they kept up over the years. And when John retired from his military career, he came to IUPY in, in the early 90s. And when that happened, two of the world's leading scholars on Bradbury were right here in Indianapolis. Mm. Uh, Dr. William Tupons did his dissertation on Bradbury. Very few people had done their dissertation on Bradbury. Uh, in fact, Bradbury wasn't given a lot of attention in the ivory towers of, of academia. Uh, Dr. Eller and Dr. Tupons wanted to remedy that. So they established the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies in 2007. The initial mission of the center was to encourage scholarly work on Bradbury. So they established oh. a, uh, a brand, a, a new uh, scholarly journal called the New Ray Bradbury Review. Mm-hmm. And they also started putting out critical editions of Bradbury's earliest work. And that was really the focus of the center uh, for the first uh, five or six years. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Bradbury uh, passed away in June of 2012. The world lost a, a creative genius when that happened. And a little over a year later, uh, the family, uh, because of John's relationship with Bradbury, uh, John's devotion to Bradbury in, in, um, in an intellectual sense, uh, they wanted some of Bradbury's personal effects to be preserved and made available to the public. And so the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies was entrusted with um, with a massive gift, uh, over 150,000 pages of Bradbury's papers, you know, correspondence going back to the 1940s, uh, typescripts, teleplays, his work in theater, uh, and enough of his personal effects that we've been able to recreate his basement office with entirely original artifacts. You know, his working library, his typewriters, his desks. Uh, and I say desks plural um, because his original writer's desk is there as well as the larger metal uh, desk that he used uh, from the mid 1960s on. Um, it, you know, it's an amazing collection. So 
you know, our, our mission expanded virtually overnight. All of a sudden, we're not just a, a hub for scholarship on Bradbury, but we're a museum, we're an archive, we're a research center, and we're a public outreach center as well. So to nerd out here a little bit when it comes to archiving, as you mentioned, the center got a huge amount of material from Bradbury's home in Los Angeles, where he'd lived since 1958, some 18,000 pounds of material. So tell me, again, not to nerd out as an archivist, I mean, how do you feel about that material now? Do you feel like it's fairly well incorporated or organized, or is there still a lot of work for you uh, to do? It's it's an amazing collection. As somebody who loves archives and loves books, and, and you know, I, I particularly love uh, you know, fantasy stuff, things that, that deal with deep time. Um, and I, I love passages and books that describe archives. Mm. And the, uh, the Bradbury Center is just, uh, it, it's exploding with, with stuff that, you know, Bradbury touched so many aspects of 20th century American culture in ways that deeply resonate uh, long after uh, the current time that he was in, uh, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, that still resonate today. But everything arrived in situ, you know. So we've received 31 of his filing cabinets, and we also received, uh, you know, a large collection of what we have affectionately named the lost papers, because uh, in Bradbury's Palm Springs home. He would go over there on weekends and work. And there was a, there was a large wicker credenza that he just tossed stuff in mm-hmm. uh, when, when he was done with it. So, uh, you know, as, as John's wife, uh, Debbie Eller, who is uh, just an awesome volunteer, she knows the collection so well, she was going through and organizing that into loose categories and she's finding everything in there, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, all kinds of, uh, of stuff that's very much relevant to the collection and then candy wrappers and uh, you know, <laughs> other things on occasion. Yeah. You know, Bradbury never threw anything away, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I don't think it's appropriate to label him a hoarder outright, but if you view hoarding as something that's uh, uh, something that has a spectrum, Bradbury was definitely on the spectrum because he was a child of the depression. He had a hard time throwing anything out. And for scholars, this is wonderful news, you know, because there's <laughs> there's so much of his life that is represented. I mean, he was he, he was a person of letters, and uh, he wrote for a living, and his life revolved around writing, and that's very apparent in the collection. But he filed reactively, so those thirty one filing cabinets, you'll open it up, and there's there's folders, and what's on the folder that's that's labeled there may or may not be the, the contents of that folder because he would file reactively. You know, he, he if he needed a folder for something, sometimes he would just take the contents out and stuff what he thought was important back in there. And, uh, you know, I love hearing uh, John Eller talk about going out to visit Ray Bradbury because there was, there was a running joke, you know, especially in, in Bradbury's later years, he wasn't able to get down to his basement office. So he would send people down there and say, oh, yeah, yeah, this, this is in my office. Go down and find it. And then they would all sit there and laugh because, you know, it was, <laughs> it, it was, it was a bit chaotic. And, and that chaos, that wonderful chaos, it, it, there's a charm to it. There, mm-hmm. Bradbury had a, a pomegranate mind. And, yes, there were so many seeds all over this, the place. Mm-hmm. We're we're working now on processing the collection, but uh, because we're an unbudgeted unit within the School of Liberal Arts at IUPUI, we have to raise all of our own money um, oh. to to pay for staff and keep things running. Uh, that that's not a reflection on the school's appreciation for us or, or the importance that they place in the collection. It's just. You know, liberal arts it, it, across the country is, is struggling now. Fewer and fewer people are majoring in English and history. And uh, there's a very heavy STEM focus on, on education, uh, uh, especially at the college level these days. And, uh, and it's, it's caused some, some financial problems. So it's really on us to raise the money to do that. Since Dr. Eller retired, uh, he, he and his wife, Debbie, who were really two full-time people in the Bradbury Center when I started, they come up occasionally. They help us out as much as they can. They're still very much involved in our work. I still call John up several times a week to get his uh, his perspective on things that are happening in the world of Ray Bradbury and things that are happening in the center. 
but the only progress that's being made right now in processing that collection, those 150,000 papers, is uh, is a volunteer who has just donated thousands of hours uh, to the center, uh, Nancy Orem. She's she's absolutely incredible, but and she is a a fully credentialed archivist. Oh, she wow, has been how lucky. She has been a godsend because if it wasn't for Nancy. There, there would be no work happening um, mm-hmm. at this time on processing the collection. And so every day that she comes in, she moves us a, a, another inch closer to being a fully functional archive. We have hosted researchers um, who, who were uh, doing scholarly work on Bradbury over the years. Uh, but a lot of times it's call John and figure out where this thing might be located in the archive because he's got an idea of where things are, but it's it has not been processed to the point where we can uh, have clear finding aids and we've got full intellectual control in the sense that we know what we have and we know where to find it. Oh, I see. Yeah. So this is still early. Yeah. Early stages. How is the center of funded at all? Do you sometimes get grants or is that not a possibility or yeah. Tell me how that, about that. Since we both have MBAs, I have to ask about finances here. (laughs) We've received support from the NEH, from Indiana Humanities, from the Indiana Historical Society uh, over the years. And we also have uh, an annual giving campaign that we're trying to, Mm. we're really trying to establish a grassroots annual giving campaign uh, for for constituents and get people connected to the center and involved in our work. Uh, it, it really the the best way for us to to be able to support our staff is to have those unrestricted gifts come in, wow. uh, so that we can uh, so that we can compensate our staff. Yeah. So I should mention there's a really cool virtual tour that you can take online. I just I have to commend you for that. It doesn't literally take you there, but it virtually takes you there, and it's so cool. You can walk in between the book stacks and look down on things. You can look at the awards. You can look at his typewriter. I mean, that virtual tour is really amazing. And then there's a text accompaniment uh, with it also. Um, but yeah, I, the, the fact that the center has recreated that 3D space from his home, and then you actually get to go virtually and stand mm-hmm. in there and look around. It, it's really, it's really priceless. I mean, it, it's just very cool. Yeah, I am so glad that we've got that virtual tour. You know, we want people to be able to, to step in and experience the the, the creative uh, magic and intelligence that that Ray Bradbury represents, and it's really reflected. You know, in that library where there's so many toys, there's so many knickknacks, there's mm-hmm. so many things that, that he received over the years that he loved. You know, we've got so many of his awards and so often uh, they're they're dinged up. You know, there is a chip in Ray Bradbury's uh, Pulitzer Prize crystal. <laughs> he really, everything that he's got has has some little flaw in it because he loved those things. Uh, they were tangible. They were not something that should be sitting on a shelf. He would take them out. He would let people hold them. And, and he held them. He played with his toys until uh, uh, until he couldn't play with them any longer. You know, he, he, he just had that uh, childlike wonder uh, for the universe, uh, you know, and that's reflected in his stories about traveling to space. But he also just, he loved his toys. He, uh, I think that's part of why his imagination was so robust throughout his life is he never let himself get educated out of it. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, there's also a really pretty work table that you can see that has a blue top and white legs. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to read about that table that the daughters said that they'd never seen the top of it since the <laughs> 1960s because yeah. it was always covered with stuff. Right. And, and uh, John mm-hmm. Eller referred to it in his biography at, that's on the center's website as a parade of projects that, you know, yeah. that would march across that table. And the image of that is so really touching. And the other thing that I really like about seeing that space is you see Ray Bradbury as, you know, just kind of his workmanship, right? That he wrote every day and he went to that space and he produced, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's often important for 
people who are starting to write to realize is that it's not necessarily a romantic endeavor that you scrawl in a notebook under an apple tree. It's work and you have to go and have a space like Stephen King would say with a door that closes. Yes. Yeah. That, you know, we just learn a lot about writing from watching how Bradbury did it, right? His habits and what he kept around him for inspiration. Yeah, I think you can learn a lot just from seeing his space. Oh, absolutely. And that space that that his office, the, the recreation of his office is sitting in is just inches off of the actual dimensions from Ray Bradbury's office. We were, uh-huh. uh, John, and that's the reason it's there is, is part of Dr. Eller's uh, foresight and planning. You know, he identified that as this is a perfect place where we can take these artifacts out of storage because they they were in storage uh, for uh, for the first three years that, that we had them. It wasn't until 2016 where they were able to to identify that footprint in Kavanaugh Hall and, and reconstruct it. Yeah, it's a be- It really is a beautiful space, and you know, some of the stuff it, that's in there isn't just. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the Pulitzer, but there are a lot of artifacts, too, from posters of movies that were made from his books mm-hmm. or, you know, I saw some uh, some dinosaurs there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just visually very rich. And a lot of it, I think, isn't just knickknacks, but fairly important things historically. I don't know if you can think of anything well, uh, there's one story that, that appears in John Eller's third biography, Ray Bradbury Beyond Apollo, uh, that I love telling uh, every time people come to the center, uh, it, because this this just shows some of the magic of the place that happens there. When, when Bradbury was very young, he, he discovered death, learned that he was going to die someday, which was traumatic. And he was also told at a carnival sideshow attraction, uh, he saw this guy, Mr. Electrical, who Mm -hmm. told him to live forever. And he thought, well, how can I do that? Uh, After contemplating and and thinking about his love of the library, he realized if I'm going to live forever, I need to live on the bookshelves next to my favorite author, Mm -hmm. you know, somewhere between Edgar Rice Burroughs and Emily Dickinson. (laughs) And that's uh, in part what motivated him to start writing and telling these wonderful stories. His favorite author was John Steinbeck. He absolutely adored Steinbeck. In fact, if you look at the Martian Chronicles and you look at the Grapes of Wrath, you could see some of Steinbeck's influence in the way that he weaved those stories together. Mm-hmm. Uh, he met Steinbeck once. Uh, he was uh, Bradbury was traveling uh, through Mexico. Uh, you know, when he graduated from high school, he was selling newspapers for a penny apiece. That's the only income he had. He he would sell newspapers in the afternoon and he'd go to the library in the mornings and and read and write whenever he could. And there was an opportunity for him to go down. Uh, there, there was a museum in Los Angeles that wanted to, to do an exhibit. And there was some type of, I think they were masks that they wanted to purchase from Mexico related to a particular festival. And so Bradbury was going to go down to Mexico and purchase them and then resell them to the museum for a profit. Mm-hmm. One of the places he was staying, he came down to the great room and Steinbeck was sitting at the breakfast table and Bradbury couldn't believe it. This was not expected. Steinbeck was was down there for the filming of the Spanish language film, The Pearl. Uh-huh. Uh, Bradbury went over and introduced himself to Steinbeck and told him how much his work had meant to him and it, you know how much he valued uh, Steinbeck's contributions to, to American literature. But he was too bashful. He'd been published at that point, but it was very early in his career where, and, and the only places he'd been published were pulp magazines. Mm-hmm. And he didn't say, I'm a writer too. You've inspired me to become a writer because he was embarrassed. You know, here's the great John Steinbeck and here I am a pulp fiction author. And he always regretted that, you know, in, in the 1960s, Fahrenheit 451 is doing very well. He's got four collections of short stories that have been published, and or maybe more at this point, maybe five or six years. He's thinking, you know, I've kind of arrived. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm getting published in, in some of the same magazines that Steinbeck was published in. You know, it's not just pulp magazines. I'm getting published in the slicks. And as he's contemplating reaching out to Steinbeck, he learns of Steinbeck's passing. 
never had the opportunity to connect with his idol. And he regretted that uh, th throughout his, his adult life. And he would tell that story and, and he would get misty eyed. Uh -huh. And uh, I'll never forget John telling me this story. He, he went out to visit Ray. He, he usually went out and visited Ray a couple times a year. He'd stayed for a few weeks in Los Angeles and uh, interview Ray for, for the biographies, but also uh, you know, assist Ray in, in a variety of things. It was early 2000s, perhaps 2003, 2004. I know the specifics are in Bradbury Beyond Apollo. So go purchase John's book and, and read Bradbury Beyond Apollo. Ray could not wait to tell John, he's, you're not going to believe what happened. Ray was so generous with this time. Uh, he would put on all kinds of free programs for public libraries. And to have a writer at Bradbury's caliber coming to your library to do a talk with patrons for free is, is almost unheard of. Mm -hmm. uh, he would go to writers' conferences and he would encourage young writers because there were people who encouraged him when he was young mm -hmm. and he was paying it forward. And he was at one of those in the early 2000s. And after his talk, uh, a young man came up to him and, well, a, a guy came up to him and said, oh, Mr. Bradbury, such an honor to meet you. Your work has been a part of my life for many, many years. My name is Thomas Steinbeck. Oh, wow. It was John Steinbeck's oldest son. Oh, wow. And what story do you think Ray needs to tell Thomas <laughs> about meeting his father and never right. connecting with him? And uh, so, so Ray, Ray tells Thomas the story. And Thomas just said, oh, Mr. Bradbury, you didn't have to worry. My dad read your stories to us when we oh, were kids. Wow. He knew your work and he loved you. You got to understand John Eller is a meticulous scholar and everything that's in those biographies has been verified by at least two sources. Bradbury can be one of those sources, but John always verifies. Mm. So this was about a year before I got to the center. This is, I believe, November, 2016. John is working on the third and final volume of the biography. And he realizes, well, I need to reach out to Thomas Steinbeck to confirm this, this story, to, to, to verify it. And so he, he consults Dr. Google. And uh, as he's trying to find Thomas Steinbeck's contact information, discovers that Thomas Steinbeck had passed away in August. Oh, jeez. I, I think this is the best anecdote, the best story for that third volume, because it encompasses so much of Bradbury's life mm -hmm. in, in a single moment. Mm -hmm. John is just beside himself. Mm -hmm. He can he can reach out to other Steinbeck family members and confirm that Steinbeck knew who Bradbury was. But this actual incident, this particular story, is not going to make it into the biography unless by some chance somebody was there and overheard the conversation and, and could verify it. But that's like a needle in a haystack. There's right. no way you're going to find that. Five days later, you remember I was talking about the lost papers. Debbie Eller was... Uh, going through and organizing it. And she brought a letter to John. It was six pages. It was from Thomas Steinbeck that essentially said, Mr. Bradbury, you seemed interested in, in what I had to say. So let me tell you how much you meant to our family for six pages. <laughs> he goes on and on about the, the Steinbeck literary calendar and, and the, the passages from October Country, the short stories from October Country that came up every year, the passages from Dandelion Wine that were read in the spring. And so um, oh, wow. it, it, because of our work in the archive, that story has been verified and it is in the third and final biography of, of John Eller's uh, trilogy. Well, that's fantastic. It brings everything together, right? The, the humanness, Bradbury as an encourager, and then the archives, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, so that, yeah, that's really a great anecdote. We, we uncover so much stuff like that uh, sure. on a weekly basis. You know, before the pandemic, and there were more hands on deck. I remember just a few days before the lockdown, somebody said, Oh my gosh, here's a letter from Ted Danson. You know, we were processing the oh, correspondence. Wow. Right. And, but the thing is, uh, and as great as Ted Danson is, you mm -hmm. know, he's small potatoes to some of the other celebrities that, that have written Bradbury. He knew everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, so letters from Spielbergs, from Stephen King, from presidents and dignitaries. And it's amazing the impact that he had, broadly speaking, on, on American culture. I'm going to switch gears on you here. And I, sure, because I want to be sure to get this topic in. It's a 
it's a topic that's really dear to my heart and thinking something I'm thinking a lot about these days, and that is about censorship and book burning. Mm -hmm. So Bradbury lived through the McCarthy era, and he could see the danger of the suppression of free speech. He was himself a very outspoken person, gave lots mm -hmm. of interviews and didn't hold back. Uh, he was uh, critical of being too cautious yourself because of political correctness. And so I wonder sometimes if he expressed some ideas that by today's sensibilities would be considered uh, inappropriate or wrong or bad. And so do you sometimes worry that the censors, uh, whoever they might be, will come for Ray Bradbury? Yeah, and he certainly said some things that were were problematic, but I think that's that's such a small snippet of his overall legacy. Mm -hmm. There are stories that he wrote about race in the 1940s that he couldn't get published. Way in the Middle of the Air was never published until he was able to publish it in his own collection in the Martian Chronicles. The same is true for The Other Foot, which appears in The Illustrated Man. Now, neither one of those stories is going to pass any sort of 21st century critical race test today. Uh -huh. But it shows that he was thinking about it. It shows that he was trying to, to help. You know, he was writing for a primarily white audience, I think. Mm -hmm. And he was trying to get them to think differently about how we are treating people who look different from us mm -hmm. and, and to imagine what it would like be like to be in their shoes. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not to excuse things that, that are problematic that needs to be called out and, and acknowledged. Uh, but Bradbury's overall, I mean, we're talking about a person who spent his entire life standing up for free speech Mm -hmm. uh, for dreaming about reaching the stars and, and promoting public libraries because he believed knowledge should be free and accessible to everyone. Mm -hmm. If you look at the, the collection of authors who were born in 1920 and, and what they produced, Bradbury is among the least problematic. And that's not to say that, that, that he's not problematic today by, by our standards, but I think, think there needs to be a measured approach in how, in how we evaluate his legacy. Yeah, I continue to think that that's something that, that we're just going to have to grapple with is that you can't consider people in isolation. I guess that's the conclusion that I'm arriving at as we discover that you know, thought evolves. It's just not fair to judge people who wrote a long time ago by the standards that we have today. I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm just thinking we're going to have to be more careful and more nuanced. So we just don't throw people under the bus for things that they said. I don't know what you think, Jason. I think this is a really tough topic. Oh, it is. It is. And I definitely affirm the complexity there. You know, it, it's... There are things that absolutely have to be corrected, and, and we have to be part of that solution. And I think that it's important to give people room to grow. Mm -hmm. You know, I know people who hold beliefs now that, that are, are good that they didn't hold 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. We've got to give people the opportunity uh, to learn. I, I love Maya Angelou's quote, uh, which, which essentially says, do your best until you know better. And mm. then when you know better, do better. Mm. That has resonated with me for years. And, uh, you know, that's that's one of my mottos. I'm, I'm doing the absolute best I can now, but I'm always open to being wrong and, and to learning and to adjusting behavior and thoughts going forward. Um, so I'm, I'm doing the best that I can, but I always want to know more. I always want to know better. I think if we can look at each other and see, just just extend a little bit more grace to people. And that's not to say that people should uh, should be required to be patient when it comes to issues of injustice. Uh, I don't think that, that 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 is a virtue in that context. It's important to be impatient. It is important to work for for change. But at the same time, when somebody has has turned a corner and thinks differently, it, it is unfair to pull something out of their past, you know, 20 or 30 years ago when they clearly don't hold those beliefs now, mm -hmm. when they've, uh, to use a religious term, when they've repented from that wrong thinking and they have adjusted and they're going forward. I think it's important to acknowledge that and not to, yeah, I mean, sure, absolutely. Uh, call out things that should not have been said or, or, or things that are wrong. 
But it's important to, to not lose sight of the fact that somebody may have changed mm-hmm. and somebody is leading a very different thought life uh, since then. I, I, I do think that's important. There needs to be room for grace and room for growth. I appreciate that. I, I really appreciate that coming from an archivist too, right? Because these are going to be issues that we're going to continue to struggle with. And I think archivists can help us put things in perspective and understand yeah. things in the context of broader work. From an archival perspective, Bradbury was ahead of his time. You know, there's no doubt about that. He was not necessarily ahead of our time. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that we lose something. We lose a lot of good if we cancel Bradbury and we don't forgive him for not being up to our standards today in the 21st century. Because the reality is we all stand on the shoulders of giants and Bradbury was a creative giant. Mm -hmm. There's such richness in his legacy. There's such richness in the works that he left behind. I feel like he brings so much more good into the world than any objection somebody might have to certain things that he said in in interviews. So speaking of being ahead of his time, I was really amused in Fahrenheit 451. I'd kind of forgotten this until I looked at it again this week that he talks about having, I think he calls them parlor walls. They're like uh, wall-to-wall TVs mm-hmm. and then little seashells that you put in your ears so you, oh, can, yeah. so you can hear things. It's like, oh my goodness, we, we totally have those things now. And of course, you know, one of the observations that he's making in Fahrenheit 451 is you don't have to censor things if people just stop reading. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, having people addicted to these televisions or the things in their ears was a concern for him because he felt that that would work in the opposite direction from education. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, all these things just seem so pertinent, right? So uh, up up to the minute now. So I was going to ask you, since your head is often full of Ray Bradbury, like how often do you think of him as you just go around in modern life? It's like, oh, Bradbury talked about Oh, that. gosh. He was so prescient. Have you ever read his short story called The Murderer? Oh, I don't. I, that doesn't sound familiar, but okay. I, I don't know. I've read so much over the years. Yeah. Basically, uh, he imagines a not so distant future where humans are constantly connected to each other. You know, you're getting messages from your watch. You're getting messages over the loudspeaker. You know when your friend is taking a sip of whiskey or going to bed. And he wrote this in the, the early oh, 1950s. Wow, right. <laughs> and, you know, so he doesn't describe an iPhone in the story, but he is describing smartwatches and, mm. and all of these other things. And, uh, you know, basically the story takes place with, uh, it's an interview with a psychiatrist because this guy just goes nuts and starts smashing everything because he wants solitude. He wants oh. um, uh, to, to be disconnected. And so he's murdering technology. Oh, wow. And just goes crazy. And it was a cautionary tale. And it's not, I, I wouldn't put it anywhere near Bradbury's top stories in terms of literary quality, but in terms of prescience and looking forward and imagining a future where in many respects, we're living in that reality today. um, That's, that's one of his very best in, in, in those respects. That's amazing. Are there any other works of Bradbury's that you think are kind of overlooked? Like, is there anything you would encourage people to go read that they might not have heard of? Yeah, I, I think he's known primarily as the author of Fahrenheit 451, and that is what most people have read by Ray Bradbury. And I think that's a wonderful work. It's a wonderful novel. Uh, I think it's a very, very important work, and I think it belongs right there next to 1984 and Slaughterhouse-Five and Brave New World in, in terms of uh, imagining a trajectory that we don't want to go down as human beings. Uh, but really, he's he's a master of the short story. So I would encourage reading things like The Illustrated Man hmm. uh, and The Martian Chronicles. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful story in The Martian Chronicles called um, And the Moon Be Still is Bright. That's my favorite story from the collection where he imagines going to Mars and colonizing it. There's a message in there. You know, if we don't clean up our act here on on Earth and start treating this planet better, we are going to go 
to another planet and, and destroy that too. You know, we need to clean up our act before we think about going out into space and, and carrying all of our bad habits with us. And the moon be still as bright. That's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And then uh, last uh, million dollar question here. Why should people come to the center? To experience Bradbury. We've got so many stories to tell, so, so many things to show you that, that are not on the virtual tour. We do have a limited staff, so we do not have regular hours where we are open. Okay. Everybody who works in the center is part-time, including myself. You know, I'm, I'm my primary obligation to the university is as, as a faculty member. So I, I have a heavy teaching load. I, I do get some course releases to direct the center, but there's nobody there in the center nine to five. So it's important to reach out to us over email and schedule a tour with us. We're happy to, to host you. We'll, we'll work out a time and we'll get our schedules aligned, especially if you want to bring a tour group. But, you know, there's that passage in Fahrenheit. It says everybody needs to have a place to go when they die. You know, you need to, you need to leave something behind so your soul has a place to go, something that you have touched and that will remind people of you. And boy, did Bradbury ever do that with the library that he created, uh, with the works that he left behind. And so many of those are preserved in our small little footprint in Kavanaugh Hall at, at IUPUI. And it's it's a special place. And I, I love showing people the collection and, and telling them stories. You know, before the pandemic, the program for intensive English at IUPUI is on the same floor where the Bradbury Center is located. And students from all over the world come and get a crash course in English to help increase their fluency so that they can study uh, at American universities. And we've had students from all over the world, Thailand, Russia, Japan, you name it, us, uh, Saudi Arabia. Nobody has visited the center yet who could not pull off a a book from, uh, from our shelves and read a Bradbury story in their native tongue. He's one of the most widely translated authors in the world, uh, upwards of 40 languages at this point. And yeah, even Arabic. Bradbury has been translated into Arabic. We're working very hard to make sure that that the center is a place that is about something. It Mm -hmm. it is about the, the legacy, the material legacy of Ray Bradbury. But we're also very focused on being for someone. And, and by someone, I mean everyone. We mm-hmm. want everybody to feel uh, welcome, to feel like there is something meaningful to them that, that they can take away that, that edifies them. And, and knowing a little bit more about Bradbury and why literacy is important, why space travel is important. You know, our archives exploding with stuff from NASA, too. Mm-hmm. NASA absolutely loved Ray Bradbury, um, and, and he spoke and, and knew the astronauts. And, uh, you know, his dreams of going to space became their dreams. He is the author of Fahrenheit 451, and that is a novel that has really been such an important part of the American literary tradition. Uh, but he, he's, he's so much more than that. Well, it's just been lovely to talk to you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, as I say, having had the chance this week to remember and read things from uh, yeah, my early years of reading Ray Bradbury. So thank you so much. And before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like to alert the audience to if you want to refer them to your website or anything in particular? Here's your moment. Yeah, we've we've launched a new newsletter. So if you want to keep up with things that are happening in the archive or or things that, that are going on with the Bradbury Center in general, uh, it's called the Bradbury Beat. And you know, we really we we exist on the the generosity of people who love Ray Bradbury. If you love Bradbury, you know, if he's meant anything to you. Uh, please help us keep his legacy alive. If you visit the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies webpage, there's a Give Now button. We live and die by unrestricted gifts. So if you've got an opportunity, any amount helps. We're eager to, to keep his legacy going, to continue putting out programs that help adults become better readers, better writers, better thinkers. And uh, if you want to be part of our work, uh, we would love to have you. All right. Thank you very much, Jason. It's been lovely to talk to you. Oh, Jennifer, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much. The rest of the podcast will be factual and biographical information about Ray Bradbury to try and fill in some gaps here. And because he had such a long and interesting life. 
Jonathan Eller, we talked about during the podcast as really the definitive biographer of Ray Bradbury. And the biography spans three volumes. First, Becoming Ray Bradbury, which was published in 2011, then Ray Bradbury Unbound from 2014, and finally Ray Bradbury Beyond Apollo, which was published in 2020. There's also a really good year-by-year timeline on the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies website, uh, so you can check that out. Uh, but an overview here uh, Ray was the child of the Depression, as uh, Jason mentioned in the podcast. He was born in 1920, and his father moved the family several times as he struggled to hold down a job or get work. Ray was born in Waukegan, Illinois, just north of Chicago, an almost idyllic town at that time. And he's put the town in a number of his stories, and he calls it Green Town. The library was very important to him, as we mentioned in the podcast. He was a huge supporter of libraries. Ray spoke in an interview about libraries being people and that you could go into the library and find all these people like John Steinbeck and Eudora Welty, Emily Dickinson, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Jules Verne, and the many, many, many classics that he loved. I mean, really loved, which you can see when you spend much time studying his life or listening to his interviews. So back to Waukegan, there's a really nice park there now that they've named the Ray Bradbury Park. And they also have a Ray Bradbury Museum experience where you can see his old house uh, and see the library, which they now have renamed the Ray Bradbury Waukegan Carnegie Library. <laughs> so in moving his family around, his father did take them to spend a year or two in Tucson, Arizona, but kept going back to Waukegan where they had extended family. Uh, Ray's dad was a lineman for the phone company, but kept getting laid off during those Depression years. They were poor. Ray didn't go to college because there was no money, though, as we said, he was fairly skeptical about the usefulness of college uh, for a writer, which he determined fairly early that that's what he wanted to do. But to describe how poor they were, Ray tells a story about going to high school graduation in a suit that had been owned by his uncle, even though it had a bullet hole in it from when his uncle had been shot. So they didn't have money for a new suit. Ray was really fortunate to have all that family around him in Waukegan at a young age, and he talked a lot about how family members read to him, taught him how to read when he was only five, took him to the library, gave him books, and really encouraged his reading. They even gave him a toy typewriter when he was little. As is often the case with stories of life during that time, there was a lot of tragedy He had an older brother whose twin had died before Ray was born. He had a little sister who was born when he was seven, but she died of pneumonia just a year later. And Ray himself got very sick with whooping cough that year and missed three months of school. And it was around that period that a young cousin nearly drowned in Lake Michigan, and he used that trauma for his story, The Lake, Uh, which is the first story that he thought was quite good. Then when he was 14, the family moved to Los Angeles, and his life really changed. He was a huge fan of Hollywood and its stars, so he was ecstatic to be in this famous area. He used to roller skate around town to try and get autographs and meet people. He enrolled in the Los Angeles High School, where he was encouraged by two key teachers— Teachers, again, so important. He joined the drama club, bought himself a real typewriter for $10, and really started writing in earnest. He did start getting little things published in local publications, the student newspapers, some fan magazines, and even started his own magazine. 
He was excused from military service because of his poor vision, and imagine what we would have lost uh, if he had died in the war. He started getting a lot more things published in magazines like Super Science Stories, Weird Tales, Famous Fantastic Mysteries, Detective Tales. By the time he was 27, he had sold his first story anthology and met his wife, Maggie McClure, who worked at a bookstore. And he was married to her for 56 years and also in that time frame found his lifelong agent, Don Congdon. Things really started moving for him then. He won an O. Henry Award. He had uh, the first of his four daughters and Doubleday published The Martian Chronicles, which was a bunch of short stories we mentioned in the podcast, kind of brought together in a cohesive story to sort of a novel. He managed to get a copy of that into Christopher Isherwood's hands, who gave it a good review. So, yeah, things were starting to look up for him during this period. And then in 1951, he published The Fireman as a novella in a magazine. It would eventually become Fahrenheit 451, probably his most famous work. He tells this great story of it being too noisy at home with his two daughters by that time. So he was trying to find a place to work and wandering around the UCLA campus, and he heard the sound of typewriters and discovered that there was a basement where you could rent a typewriter for 10 cents per half hour. So he brought in a bag of dimes and banged out the uh, first iteration of The Fireman in a couple of weeks. Uh, Eventually, Doubleday thought it was too short, so he went back for another session and grew the manuscript from 25,000 words to 50,000 words. And then the book was eventually published in 1953. So the joke goes that the book cost him $9.80 to write it. For the context of Fahrenheit 451... Remember that Joseph McCarthy, a senator from Wisconsin, had risen to prominence in 1950 by publicly going after homosexuals and communists. By 1954, he had gained enough momentum to organize the McCarthy hearings in which prominent politicians and public figures were investigated. Eventually, he lost power and was censured by the Senate and died in 1957 of cause that may have been related to alcoholism. He was a strange character. But that period was really terrifying for gay men, uh, for those of you out there who have not heard of this. McCarthyism today, that term has come to mean accusations or public attacks on the character of other people. And remember that this is the time frame when J. Edgar Hoover was head of the FBI, and he also loved to go after imagined communists or people he deemed a threat. All of this followed the House Un-American Activities Committee work, where a number of Hollywood filmmakers were called in and asked if they were members of the Communist Party. Many careers were ruined or nearly ruined during this time as accusations, often baseless accusations, flew and people backed away from those who had been accused, rightly or wrongly. Pete Seeger was one of those, and he refused to answer the committee's questions about his beliefs or how he voted, stating that those were very improper questions for any American to be asked. He was sentenced to a year in prison for his insubordination, which was later overturned, but he was blackballed by television for decades after that. Orson Welles was investigated by the FBI because his new film, Citizen Kane, was critical of news mogul William Randolph Hearst. Eventually, 300 actors, artists, producers would end up on the blacklist and were forbidden to work in Hollywood. Many left the country, like Orson Welles did for an extended period of time, and some worked under an alias. But it was terrible for their careers. So that was the backdrop for Fahrenheit 451, which is about a period in the future when books have been banned and firemen have the job of going around to find books and burn them, kind of a bizarre reversal of their role. It's a great story. It's been turned into movies, a play, 
uh, a video game, and it still seems timeless today. And I'll mention again this quote by Ray, you don't have to burn books to destroy a culture, just get people to stop reading them. And in the novel, the protagonist's wife and her friends have no interest in books because they have their inane TV shows and audio that they enjoy and spend time on. Ray was worried about the effect of mass media, especially television, on people's interest in reading and learning. And right now, I think about that a lot when I see how addicted we are to our phones, social media, streaming shows, television, and video games. But I probably just sound like an old person. Just an aside here also, although Ray is often referred to as a science fiction writer, he would argue that Fahrenheit 451 was probably his only real science fiction book, although there may be some stories too that would qualify because it deals with science and technology, the wall-to-wall TVs and earphones that we talked about on the podcast. Ray would maintain that most of his writing falls into the genre of fantasy. Starting in the mid-1950s, Ray was starting to win a lot of awards and being asked to do a lot of work for Hollywood in in script writing. He was also editing, speaking. He co-founded the Writers Guild Film Society. He was doing voiceover, just an amazing lot of work. He moved his family to Cheviot Hills in 1958, where he would live until his death while keeping a second home in Palm Springs. He kept up an amazing pace until his 70s and just had a remarkable number of honors and prizes. An asteroid was named after him. A crater on the moon was named Dandelion Crater. A landing site on Mars was named after him. He got a Hollywood star, a huge number of Lifetime Achievement Awards, the Pulitzer, we mentioned an Emmy, a nomination for a Grammy, the National Medal of Arts, and really uh, too many to list. Remember, though, that Ray himself was the subject of censorship, as parents would sometimes find the obscenities in his books, especially Fahrenheit 451, objectionable and inappropriate for high school students. Uh, I think there's a mention of abortion in Fahrenheit 451. And they would force the schools to remove the books, of course, ignoring the irony of banning a book that talks about the dangers of banning and burning books. But it's often the case that those who want to censor and ban have actually not read the works that they're so interested in removing. The publishers were sometimes complicit and published, like, cleaned-up versions of the books. And when Ray found out, he insisted that they go back to the original version He died in 2012 at the age of 91, and although few of us can hope to achieve what Ray did in his lifetime, I'm always struck by how enthusiastic he is about life. There are some really great interviews with him on YouTube where you can get a real sense of his beliefs and his zest for life and his approach to life. He gave a commencement speech at Caltech in year 2000 when he was 80, and I want to read you a little bit of it. He starts out, this is his opening, this is fantastic. I never made it to college, I didn't have enough money, and I decided I was going to be a writer anyway. He then asks them how many of them read his books in high school, and when they raise their hands, he says, you're all my bastard children. He tells the story of roller skating around Hollywood and asking for autographs, and he managed to corner W.C. Fields and ask him for an autograph, and W.C. Fields signed it and gave it back to him and says, there you are, you little son of a bitch. (laughs) So Ray says, and here I am. (laughs) He says he hopes to live another 20 years, which would have taken him to year 100. In one of the interviews, Actually, he gets asked if he would like to live forever, and he gives a fairly long and sophisticated answer about maintaining your health and maintaining your mind. He knows what growing old means and that life is not always worth living. 
Anyway, back to the speech. He tells him never to watch television news again and to spend more time at the library. It's quite funny. Actually, the whole speech is just delightful. You you can find it on uh, the internet, and it's really enjoyable. I will leave you with this. He tells them this story in the middle of the speech. The Armenians have a saying that in the hour of your birth, God thumbprints you with a genetic thumbprint in the middle of your forehead. But in the hour of your birth, that thumbprint vanishes back into your flesh. Your job as young people is to look in the mirror every day of your life and see the shape of that genetic thumbprint and find out just who and how you are. It's a big job, but a wonderful job. So be witnesses to celebrate, to be part of this universe. You're here one time. You're not coming back. And you owe, don't you? You owe back for the gift of life. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode and give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon and get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.